Masechet Ketubot of Pevav. We're going to see some very interesting cases involving repayments of loans. So here's the first. Rava comes to the son of Rabbi Ravchia Bar Avin and tells him, Come here, son, and I will tell you some of the fantastic words that your father had taught. Which is always nice for a son to hear the um, traditions from his father. So here's what Ava says. Your father repeated something about Shemuel. That Shemuel had said, Let's say you have a loan document that says A owes money to B. Right? B had lent the money and now A owes $1,000 to B. So B is holding on to a loan document that says A owes me $1,000. Now that document itself is worth money. And so B decides he is going to sell it, sell the, the contract to C. Right? Could be $4,000 or maybe it'll be a little bit less because um, it's not quite payable now and he has to, C has to go bother to collect it. And so uh, B wants that cash value now, so he does that. Similar to the way people don't do it much now, but they used to sign a check over. If I receive a check uh, for $100 and I have to pay someone else, I could just sign it over and that person will go and collect it. Okay, so you have an arrangement like that. A, a owes B, but B signs, uh, hands over the loan document to C. And here's the thing, in the middle, while C is still holding on to it before he gets repaid, B forgives the loan to A. He goes to A, listen, you remember you had that, that loan and you owed me $1,000? I'm in a good mood today. You know what? Keep the money. You don't have to pay it. Now, this is amazing. That works. The loan is canceled, which means C is holding a worthless piece of paper because when C goes back to A and says, okay, hey, you, the, the, your, your loan is up, A will say, oh, B, B forgave it. And yes, he can do that. And that will also work um, if we're talking about a uh, inheritor. If the um, if a B has died and it goes to, and now all of his property goes to B's son, B's son can also say, "Hey, listen, that money you had owed my father, so now I own his estate. You know what? Forget about it. You don't have to pay. That loan is forgotten, even though he wasn't not the original principal." And now C is going to be out that money. We're going to talk in a few minutes about whether C can go back to B to collect it because, hey, you know, you caused me to f that, that loss, but it's an indirect, uh, indirect causation. So can he go and collect it or not? We'll see in a minute. All right, that Shemuel said. Here is now an additional thing. So we're going to have a similar setup, but now we're replacing B with a woman and C with her husband. So A owes B, this woman, some $1,000. She has a loan contract. Now she gets married to C. When she gets married, she brings all of her assets, her land, her loans into the marriage. And so now B, B and C, the wife and the husband, are kind of partners in this. And so let's see, let's say B, the wife, goes and goes to A and said, remember that $1,000 you owe me? Forget about it. I forgive you. <clears throat> that does not work because C is a partner with B. 
her, his hand is like her hand, and now he has a vested interest in it, and so he has to agree to the forgiving of the loan. She cannot do it on its own. <clears throat> so the husband is not simply someone who's holding on to the documents like uh, the first case where B sold the document to C, and so C is not a partner, but rather he's the um, uh, now has the right to receive, to collect the document. Husband and wife are closer together. <clears throat> he has more rights over it and can stop her for, from, from forgiving it. Okay, so that is the um, wonderful law that Ava had repeated. And now we're going to see an actual application of this law. A relative of Rav Nachman, that's important, it's a relative because Rav Nachman is going to give advice to this relative. So this relative sold her ketubah for some uh, uh, minimal financial advantage. In other words, this is a woman who's married and she has a ketubah and the ketubah says that the husband, upon divorce, will have to pay her uh, $50,000, let's say. And so she doesn't want to wait till divorce. Um, she wants the money now. So she wants a lump sum now. So she'll sell it, sell the right to collect it to someone else for probably significant less, significantly less. She might sell it for just for $10,000 because after all, if she dies first, then uh, he doesn't pay anything uh, out. So it could be he won't pay at all. And it could be um, that they he won't have to pay for a long time. Maybe they won't get divorced. Maybe he will die first, but after a long time. And who knows if there'll be assets at that point or not. Okay, so the person receiving it is taking some risk. She's also, but uh, but that's the that's why it would be at, dis, at a discounted value. Okay, so she can do that. She can sell the, uh, the ketuvah to someone else. Now, in the meantime, after she sold it, they got divorced. At that point of divorce, the husband has to pay the ketubah. He didn't pay it yet. Uh, and she died, the wife died, and so now they have, they have one daughter together. Right? Assume there's only one daughter, no son. So the daughter will um, eventually inherit her father. Okay, so um, now uh, the, the, the mother died. It's important that they got divorced first. If, the, if they didn't get divorced and the mother just died, there would be no ketubah payout. So that's why they divorced and then died. So now the husband has to pay this out, uh, pay out the ketubah. But the question is, to who? Uh, to whom? The guy who bought the right to the ketubah comes to the daughter and says, listen, I bought the right to the ketubah and the ketubah is going to be paid out to you as the inheritor of your mother. So we want to collect the ketubah from you. And uh, they didn't they didn't give the money yet. So they didn't know what to do. Who's a relative of this of the woman and the daughter uh, says, is there no one who's going to give her advice? There's a, they have a good uh, move here. Here's, here's what the daughter should do. She should go and forgive the mother's ketubah. The ketubah is basically like a loan document. It says, I owe you, even though it's not based on a loan. It's an ayu. The husband owes money to the wife. But the wife can at any point say, I forgive the loan, right? And so to the daughter. We just learned that an inheritor can also do it. And so the daughter should go to the father and say, I forgive mom's uh, uh, ketubah. <clears throat> and then the, uh, the, he will not have to pay. Eventually, the father will die too. And what happens to all of that money? 
that goes to the daughter as she is the inheritor. <clears throat> so all, all she has to do is forgive the loan and then that knocks out the guy who purchased the ketuvah because we just said, based on Shemuel's second statement, uh, that uh, based, first statement that um, this works and if the loan is forgiven, that if she forgives the loan, the loan is forgiven and so therefore the father does not have to pay, nobody has to pay that uh, the buyer of the ketubah anything because that the ketubah is for forgiven. The ketubah is not being paid out at all. Where's the money that would have been for the ketubah? The father keeps it. Father dies, the daughter gets it. See, she got out of it. Uh, so Rav Nachman says this brilliant thing. Shama azla achelta. So um, the, the daughter listened to Rav Nachman. She went and she forgave the ketubah and she kept the money. Uh, she eventually inherited the money. Good. After Rav Nachman gave that advice, he regretted it. He said, "I made my, we made ourselves like lawyers. Uh, we made ourselves like, uh, um, like people who give advice, who give legal advice. And so this is, I, you know, I found a, a loophole in the law by which." The truth is that the guy who bought the right to the Kitubah should get the Kitubah. That's he paid money for that right. And now Rav Nachman suggested to the person that they didn't think of themselves this uh, technicality by which they can get out of paying. Rav Nachman says, I should not have done that. In general, in, in, in Jewish courts, we do not like lawyers. I wrote a whole chapter about it. Uh, I can send it to you if you're interested. That uh, um, lawyers, uh, they just you know, use all kinds of tricks and uh, persuasion to uh, undo justice. And rather, it should just be the litigants and the judges themselves. And you know, if the litigants uh, should say things as it is, and the judges should be fair. So Rav Nachman says, I feel bad that I got involved and, uh, told, and told her this advice. Now the Gemara asks, What was he thinking at first when he did it? And what, what did he change his mind when he said, I regretted it? At first he says, after he was quoting the Pasuk, From your own flesh and blood you should not hide. Since it was a relative, you got to help out your relative. In other words, right in general, your relative is in some uh, financial or legal situation, and you can give him advice, you should. He says, yeah, that's true in general, but an important person is different. I am a leader here of the community. I am a judge in the community. I can't show favoritism to a family member. I have to be uh, above that independent uh, 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 and, and completely independent and honest and trustworthy. I can't involve myself. So if he was not an important person, okay, if you have a, uh, you have a brother and your brother has some uh, needs a legal situation, okay, you can give that brother legal advice. Um, but if you are actually an important judge, important sage, then you cannot use it um, because you have to be seen as um, above any favoritism. All right, good. Gufa, Amar Shemuel. All right, now that we saw that, we want to go back to the statement of Shemuel and analyze it further. If B sells a loan document to C and then B forgives A, the loan is forgiven. And even the inheritor of B can forgive the loan. If C is smart, now, because this could happen at any time, and now C 
paid good money for this loan document and if he wants to guarantee that he'll be able to collect the loan even if B goes and forgives it, here's what he should do. He should j jiggle, jiggle some uh, some money in front of B, in other words, uh, in front of A rather. Uh, C should pay A some money, right? give, him, uh, give him something and convince A to write a contract that will say C's name on it, that it will say that A has to pay directly to C, such that if B decides to forgive the loan, it won't matter, and A will still have to pay C. Point is as follows. Let's say it was a loan document for $1,000, and C paid $1,000 for this loan document. Now, C is worried. Uh, at any time B could forgive the loan, he'll, he'll be out, and he'll be, have nothing. So here's what he'll do. He, a C should go and say to A, listen, I'll give you $50 if you just rewrite the document with my name on it. From A's perspective, this is a good deal because how often does, does someone forgive a loan? This doesn't usually happen. He's not expecting. So A knows right now I have to pay $1,000. You're offering me to pay only $950, just, but just change the name of the recipient. No problem. So it's a good deal for A. For C, it's also a good deal because now he'd rather have for sure $950 and there's no way that B can undo it, then yeah, a thousand, but B at any time can undo it is no good. So it's kind of like getting insurance on, uh, on the collection. Um, okay, very good. It could be that to begin with, C only paid 900 for it because, um, uh, you know, because it's uh, cash is, is worth uh, more to B than the loan document that he'll have to go collect after some time. Okay, so it would all work out and this is a way of getting um, insurance on that collection and uh, B won't be able to nullify it. Okay, now to the question of can C go back to B and say, B, you caused me a loss. It's true, indirectly. B didn't steal any money from C. B uh, did everything, you know, just he had in his right to forgive a loan to A, but indirectly by doing that, now C can't collect from A. So this is called garme. Whenever you cause something indirectly, like gerama on Shabbat, um, if you, you know, uh, uh, like the Gedama phones, that when you pick up the receiver, it doesn't do anything, but that only causes uh, some, uh, some button to be depressed, and then on a timer when some uh, electricity goes through it, then it will kick in. So since it's indirect, right, it's not, not a direct action, so that will affect Tulchot Shabbat. Also, it will affect damages. If I caught indirectly cause damage to someone else, do I have to pay or not? This is a huge subject called Dina de Garme. And there's a lot of opinions about it. So the one who says regarding Dina de Garme that you have to pay, Magbebe, that you do have to pay, um, uh, uh, someone who says that you are liable to Dina de Garme, then Magbebe de Meshtara Me'alia, then C can go to B and say, hey, you caused me indirect loss, you have to pay. Um, good. It's, even though it isn't indirect, nevertheless, he's responsible. But with those, we have that opinion that says, we do not 
think that uh, indirect loss is anything and you cannot adjudicate indirect loss and, and force someone to pay for it. Well, in that case, the um, C is that little C cannot go to B. Why? C goes to B and says, hey, you caused me a loss. B will say, what? What did, I, what did, what did you buy from me? A piece of paper. You have the piece of paper, right? So you should be happy. Uh, I, didn't, well, I forgave a loan. That has nothing to do with you. That's completely indirect. And so... All he sold him was the piece of paper, and okay, you have the piece of paper, uh, and uh, you know he can't come and claim. Yeah, but now the piece of paper is is worthless, so he cannot collect from it. All right, so whether C can collect from it depends on that machloket. Now, Hava Obada, there was a case that was like this. Ravafram pressured Ravashe to rule in such a manner that it was some indirect loss, and he ruled, and Ravafram. Convinced Rav Asher that he should rule that yes, you can collect. And the, the Rav Asher was able to collect for the litigant in that case as much as a beam for uh, making a sculpture. Uh, expression that means when you want to buy a beam because you're going to make a sculpture, you're going to analyze, inspect it very well to make sure it's straight, to make sure it's smooth, has to be very high quality. And so too, in this case, even though it was some indirect uh, damage, uh, Rav Asher was able to collect a full amount and analyze every every bit of it and, uh, and 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 collect all that, even though it was something indirect. Good. Okay, now we're going to see cases where someone owes uh, owes two different things, and who gets what. Uh, so a certain man, uh, he um, he owes. A woman, a ketubah, he got divorced, he owes her a ketubah. He also has a loan and he has to repay the loan. He also he has real estate and he also has cash on hand. So how should he pay it out? To the person that he owes money to, he should give him cash. He borrowed cash, he should pay back in cash. That makes sense. To the woman for the ketubah, he should pay her with land because when she made the ketubah, uh, the ketubah causes there to be a lien on his land and so she's relying on the land for the repayment and so that's why he should repay that with land. Each one, each thing according to its proper legal context. Good, that's easy. But what if the same guy, he owes two people, his ex-wife and the a creditor, but he only has one parcel of land, enough to pay only one of them. Who gets it? Only enough for one. Surprisingly, you might think, based on what we said above, that the land should go to the woman. Because that's what that's what that's what you just said. But no, when there's only one piece of land, it goes to the creditor, and the woman gets nothing. Because the woman would agree to get married anyway. More than a man wants to get married, men want to get married, but women want to get married even more. And therefore, if you even if you say to the woman, "Listen, you're going to here's your ketubah," that's an incentive for her to get married. She knows she'll be taken care of. Um, uh, but you tell her, uh, listen, if there's only one parcel of land, you're not going to get any money. Uh, you still want to get married? 
most women will say, I still want to get married, right? It's best good for them to be married. Whereas regarding a lender, if you tell the lender, listen, if there's only one parcel of land, you're not going to get it. He'll say, okay, forget I'm out. I'm not going to lend money. And we want people to be lending money because people need loans. And so therefore the lender needs more encouragement than the woman. So if there's only one, we give it to the lender and not the woman. Rapapa asks Rav Chama, is it correct, is it true that you said the following in the name of Rava? There seems uh, something off about it, so he wants to double check on this attribution. Here's the case. Haiman de Maske be Zuze, Veitle Ara, a person uh, who owes money, and the person who owes money also has land. Let's assume he doesn't have cash. The lender comes to him and says, pay up. And then the borrower says, listen, I don't have cash, but I have land, and go take the land, you know, and then you you uh, you sell it, and then you can keep keep the land, sell it, keep take the money. Uh, so the borrower is putting the onus of having to deal with selling the real estate onto the lender. Uh, he can't do that. We go and tell the borrower, no, you, you do the work. You go find a real estate agent. You find, uh, um, you find a buyer. You deal with the transaction. And go give him money. He lent you money. Give him back money. Uh, that is what we heard that you said of Chama in the name of Rava. Is that true? Did you say that? says, No, no, I never said that. So the Papa said, what's going on here? Let's get to the bottom of this rumor. Tell me the details of what happened. Now, why was he suspicious? The problem is that, that it really the, land, the borrower should be able to say, here's the land. Because um, if, it's a, um, if, it's a, if it's a loan that has a lien on land, so really the uh, lender is giving him money in exchange for a lien on the land. The land is, in fact, part of the deal. So if the borrower comes and says, take the land, so then that is legitimate. He can pay back with land. So it should be fine, and we shouldn't go and tell the borrower and pose on him, on the borrower, to have to go and sell the land and get cash and pay it back. So this is an unusual law. That's why uh, that's why the papa was suspicious that Ava really said this. So he's telling me the circumstances, and so here is exactly the case. This borrower, he had some cash on the table there. The lender comes and says, pay me back. Oh, here's cash. Give me the cash. And he doesn't want to give him the cash. So he says, oh, this cash, it belongs to some non-Jew. It belongs to the mafia boss, right? So don't, don't, you can't take it. Now he's lying. He just wanted to protect his cash so he wouldn't, no one would take it. Um, so who are Hogan? This borrower did something incorrect, improper. That's why in that case, the judges treated him improperly and said, listen, usually in most cases, you could just give the land and then the lender has to deal with the, uh, with the headache. Of, uh, deal, of of taking the land and converting it to cash. But you, you acted like a wise guy by making believe that this money, this cashier wasn't yours. Therefore, we're going to treat you improperly and we're going to pose on you, the borrower, the headache of going and selling your own land to pay the fine. So that was an exceptional case and that was a situation. But in fact, uh, no, I never said that Ava would say would apply that law in every case. In the usual case, a person can repay with land. Just take the land, you deal with it.
אמר לה רב קנד רב פפא, לדידכתא אמרת פריאת בעל חוב מצווה, אמר לא ניחא לידית אביד מצווה, מאי? So רב קנד עשרה פפא, your opinion is that paying back a loan is a מצווה, right? Who says you have to pay back a loan? Um, it's a מצוות עשה, right? תורה says be honest, keep your word, and uh, therefore if you said you're going to pay, you have to keep your word and pay. It's a misvat ase. What if a person says, I don't want to do a misvat ase? Does he have to? I mean, it's misvat ase to go visit a sick. I'll say, I'm not in the mood right now to visit the sick. Right? Uh, are you going to force me to go and visit? Uh, we don't force people to do a misvat ase. So a person says, I, I don't feel like paying it. I'm not going to pay it. How can we force him? And the answer is, We have it in a braita. When the Torah says that you can give someone 40 lashes, that's if they violate a lot. They go and eat pig. Well, we give them lashes for that. But regarding misvat we tell them, hey, start sukkot coming. Go make a sukkah. Go take a lulav. And he says, no, I don't want to do it. Then you know what? We hit him until he his soul departs from him. In other words, not doing an aseh, we give more lashes than someone who violates a law ta'aseh. And therefore, yes, we can. Um, it's not like, uh, you know, misvata say that you can do more of, you could do less of, you could do more bikucholim or less. But this one is an obligation. It's like you have to build a sukkah, so too you have to pay a loan. And if someone doesn't want to pay a loan, he says, oh, I don't, I don't want that misvah. I'll go do a different misvah instead. No, no, we go and we um, give him lashes until he agrees to, do, he agrees to uh, fulfill the mitzvah. All right. Now, a new set of questions. Ba'amine, this is about someone who wants to give a delayed get. Ba'amine, Rami Barchama, Merav Chista. Rami Barchama, who's known for asking uh, very theoretical questions, asks Rav Chista, A man goes to a woman and says, Here's your get, but the divorce will not take effect until after 30 days. Okay. She takes the get, she puts it on the side road of a, on, on the side of a public domain. Uh, so if it's in the middle of a public domain, then that's not a place where someone can acquire something. So when the 30 day comes, it's no good, right? Because she can't acquire it. If she puts it in her own house, then that for sure will be good because at 30 days, it, she has it in her house. That's when the acquisition takes effect. That's fine. But here it's in between, right? It's on the side of the public domain where people would go and congregate. It's semi-private area. So what is that? How do we consider that? Rav Chista answers, Amar megoreshet midrav u'shmoel derav u'shmoel amaret harvayu v'hu shesiburim v'nachim b'shut harabim v'sidei r'shut harabim k'r'shut harabim damum He answered that she is not divorced because we learned this from Rav and Shmuel who said above, when remember when uh, uh, talking about someone seizing a property uh, after someone dies and you can go and seize it to collect a loan and they said no if it's in the middle of the public square uh, only then you can seize it because if it's in the middle of the public square it doesn't go to the inheritors right that's what Avin Shemuel said we learned from that that when something is in the middle of the Shutarabim then it is not acquired not by the inheritors. You have to go and actually, it's hefket. Anyone who takes it can take it. So to the get, if it were in the middle of the of the street, 
then it's not hers. She cannot acquire it that way. And we're assuming, this is the first uh, version of this answer, we're assuming that the sides of the public street are like the middle of the street. And so therefore, she does not acquire it. And, a third, and, and when there comes that, those 30 days, she is not divorced. Okay, that's his answer. But then Rami Bar Chama goes uh, uh, answers back and says, Adraba, wait, why don't you say the opposite? Megoreshit, Midrav Nachman. You could say equally that she is divorced based on what Rav Nachman said, Amar Rav Nachman, Amar Abba Bar Abu. After all, Rav Nachman gave a different halacha that says if someone says, make pull this cow now, pulling a cow, that's how you acquire it, even though the transaction will not be valid until 30 days from now, it works, that's fine, even if it's uh, standing in a meadow, it's an ownerless place, not in the property of the one who pulled it. And uh, my love, isn't the meadow the same as being in the public domain? They're both owner ownerless areas, and therefore you see that it works. Um, and just like the at at the after the thirty days, since the animal is in a place is in su- is in such a place, yet the transaction works. So too, when the get is in a similar place, at at the end of thirty days, also it should be hers. And the side of the of the the side of the shutarabim does acquire it for her. Why don't you say that? And Rav says, no law. Agam lechud v'sidrabim lechud. A meadow is different from the sides of the public domain. Meadow is really a uh, uh, middle of nowhere, nothing. Whereas the sides of the public domain, people do go and say, you know, we'll make a little meeting here, and so it's a place where people will make a do a transaction, a private transaction, uh, in that spot. Even though it's not his own personal property, it is used. Uh, for private um, matters, and therefore can, is better than a meadow. Okay, so that's the that would be the bottom line uh, in this version is that uh, it, she is not divorced. But there's another version where that's different. Some say that Rav Chista answered if it's in the sides of Yeshut Rabim, she is divorced. How do you know? And in this version, it's Rav Chista that said, Mid Rav Nachman. And just like the cow that's in the meadow is, uh, is his, and the meadow is enough, is sufficient for that pulling 30 days ago to now be effective, uh, so too the sides of the Sutrabim are also good enough. And she does acquire the get and she is divorced. And then uh, Rami Barchama answers back, says, No, opposite, why don't you say it's like Rav Shemuel, that say if, when something's in, then it's public and anyone can take it. The orphans don't get it. And my love, Rami Barchama says, in the sides of the the same as the middle. And to that, Rav Chista answers, Now the sides of the are different from the middle of it. Sure, in the middle of it, he would not acquire it, but on the sides, he does acquire it. That's like a uh, discrete area that's um, semi-private, and therefore she 
the wife does acquire her get there, and the bottom line in this version is that she would be divorced. No Mishnah teaches Hamoshivet Ishto Chenvanit O Shemina Apotropia Hareze Mashpia calls Zeman Sheirse. A man uh, sets his wife up as the storekeeper in his store, puts her to work, or he appoints her to be the uh, steward to handle his uh, property or his workers or his finances. Uh, if he does that, he can make her swear anytime he wants and say, you know, did you uh, pocket any uh, change from the from the cash register, right? Did you misappropriate any funds? Anytime he could, he could make her swear to check up on her. That's Tanakama. Rebelia says he can also administer an oath even regarding the spindle or regarding her dough. He can say, you know, did you take some dough for yourself? Uh, did you steal some, uh, some string and, and take it for yourself? After all, the husband owns the, the dough and everything in the household. She has to do these household chores, but she can't uh, hide and take things for herself. So Rebelia says he can make her swear, even regarding her personal household chores, and not only if he appoints her to do um, professional work. All right, that's the Mishnah. Ibai Elihu, Rabbi Eliezer Ali de Gilgul Kamar or Lechatechila Kamar. The question is regarding Eliezer that he can make her do an oath even for these household items. Does Rabbi Eliezer say, is, is he saying that only by means of extension, meaning only in a case where he appoints her to, to oversee the shop? Since he can make her swear regarding the professional things, so then while he's at it, he can also make her swear regarding personal items. Uh, kind of like, you know, if uh, the police have a right to search your car for looking for um, uh, uh, marijuana, once they're there, uh, they can also search it for other things. So that is he saying that, but otherwise, if she was not a shopkeeper, then he would not make her be able to make her swear regarding the household items. Or does Abelia think that in any case, even if she's not appointed as a shopkeeper, even without extension of Gilgul, any husband has a right to go to his wife anytime and say, hey, did you steal this? Did you take that? Um, what is Abelia's position? All right, let's see. Um, you know, is, is it a standalone statement or is he only saying only in the case of Tanakam I was talking about, then he could make an oath, uh, make a given oath about all things. Here, so uh, answer, proof number one. Tashima, Amrullah Rabbi Eliezer. And Adam dad im nachash bechvifa. The continuation of this conversation is that the sages told Rabbi Eliezer, a person cannot live with a snake in the same basket. Uh, in other words, you know, even if you can hold it at bay for a little, eventually the snake will get you if you're living in the same basket. So too, woman can be expected to live with a husband who's constantly making her swear. It's just impossible to have a life like that. So no, sorry, you can't make her do that. Okay, that was the continuation we have in Abraita. Now let's analyze. If Rabbi Eliezer thinks that a man can make his wife swear in any case, then this question would make sense. Hey, you know, people can't live like that. But if it's just as an extension of oaths that he's already making her her take, so then what's what, what difference? The what difference is there? Since uh, she's, he's already making her give a lot of oaths, and that's according to 
the Chachamim say he can make or give it, take an oath any time. So then it's not any more of an imposition to say, listen, while you're taking an oath that you didn't steal from the cash register, also add in, and also I didn't take any dough. Right, and so he's going to bring her constantly, bring bring her to 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 get to take an oath. But it's not any more of an imposition what Rabbi Eliezer says than what the Chamim themselves say. So that would make sense. So therefore, it must be Rabbi Eliezer thinks that it's lechatechila. Even if he's not a store owner, she's not a store owner, and and otherwise he's not making her give uh, oaths for the store. He can take her any time and make her give an oath. That's what Rabbi Elzir thinks, and that's why Chachamim are against it. We answer, not necessarily. She can say, you're so exacting with me that much, I don't want to live with you. In other words, it's not just the imposition that he's making her swear, uh, that's the problem. That, uh, okay. Is, is one part of the problem. But if she's a storekeeper, then, okay, uh, bosses will do that for their storekeepers. They're not usually married, but they should trust each other. Okay, if they don't trust each other, then fine. That's that's the one imposition. But the worst part, the worst part of it is that he just doesn't trust her. Even regarding household things, she can say, I don't want to live with such a person who keeps questioning me, right? What kind of marriage is that? It would be horrible. So, um, so to be Elias, it can, uh, can in fact say that, uh, um, it's, it, it, in other words, according to Chachamim, it would make sense to make a distinction. Yes, a man can make his wife swear anytime about the store things, and she can live with that because it's business stuff. But regarding personal items, that she wouldn't want. Whereas Rabbi Eliezer would say, yes, even personal items uh, would be a problem. So there is a distinction between the two opinions. Fine. Or second proof, again, we're going to try to prove that Rabbi Eliezer thinks that his wife can administer her oaths in all cases, even if she's not the storekeeper. So this Braita says, um, a man did not uh, exempt his wife from oaths. And sometimes we're going to see in the next Mishnah that a man can say in the Ketubah, listen, I'm not going to make you uh, make oaths, right? Let's say she negotiates for that. Says, I don't, she says, I don't want to marry you if you're going to come and make me give an oath all, all the time. So she, uh, but let's say he didn't write that. So that means he does have a right to make her give, uh, make her vow. Um, so since he did not exempt her from vowing, if he then appoints her to be a storekeeper or um, uh, to be a steward over his finances, uh, then he can, in fact, make her vow anytime he wants. But if he didn't appoint her as a house, as a, as a storekeeper or as a steward, then he cannot make her take vows. Okay, so the vows are only if she's doing this professional work and cannot be for personal items, according to Tanakama. This now is explicit, Rebele says, even if he did not make her a storekeeper or a steward, the man can, a husband can, make his wife vow anytime he wants because there is no wife who is not a steward, at least for some time, when her husband is alive, about, regarding the spindle or the dough. I mean, we're going to call that a steward also, even though it's only over some these personal items or chores. That dough is also uh, she is in she is in charge of the dough, and so he can make her make a vow, take a vow, 
any time. And uh, the continuation of the Benaitas, the rabbi said, no, a person can't live like that. Um, that he's, uh, she's, she's going to make him swear all the time. If she's a store owner, then that's okay because that's a business deal. But to get uh, personally uh, uh, suspicious, if he's suspicious of her regarding personal household items, that she has a right to say, I don't want to live with you. Okay, that's the end of the Braita, but it's clear. says explicitly that he can make her swear, even if she's not the store owner, he can make her swear at any time. So that is, in fact, the position of Rabbi Eliezer. Okay, fascinating to see the role of vows uh, in uh, in the in the culture in those days and how um, uh, how much they were used. And you had a better appreciation of why uh, we do Hatarat Nedarim so many times today. Okay, Katav la Neder en li Okay, next Mishnah is that a man wrote in the Kitubah, I will not administer vows to you, right? I agree to that. I'm not going to mistrust you. You don't have to make vows all the time. And then the man cannot force her to make a vow that she didn't steal things in the, in the house. But that husband still retains the right to force the orf, her inheritors to make a vow. If she dies... And some of the the property goes the, the whatever she brought in goes to her inheritors. He can go to the inheritors and make them vow that they didn't take anything that isn't theirs, or to um, uh, those who come on her authority. For example, if she sold the right of her ketubah to a third party, he can, the husband can go to the third party and say, uh, "You need to vow um, that in order to collect." what is in the Ketubah, so he can make them vow that they're not stealing. If the husband wrote or said in the Ketubah that I'm not going to make a vow, I'm not going to make you vow, not you and not your inheritors, and not those who come uh, who come based on your authority, the third party who bought the Ketubah, if he wrote that, then then he cannot make any of those people swear. But but if the husband dies and the uh, inheritors, the sons of the husband, they they didn't say that they they're not obligated under that condition, and so they can make the wife or her inheritors or the the third party who bought the ketubah vow and in you know in in order to uh, make sure that they're not taking what's not theirs now uh, next possibility the husband writes or says i am not going to make any of make you vow and i'll also my inheritors and those who come under my authority will not make anyone vow. And they're not going to make you or your inheritors or those who come upon your authority vow. In other words, no vows, none of none, nobody associated with me will make anybody associated with, with you make a vow. So he cannot make her vow. Right? So none of the parties either way can make anyone vow. And uh, that is valid. Lastly, Okay, 
and hayorshin mashpi'in ota. We're talking about a case where the husband and wife were living together, then the husband dies. And now the inheritors of the husband are suspicious of the wife that maybe she has misappropriated funds after the father died because they didn't get to inherit everything. And maybe she's going to go around the house and said, oh, you know, this vase, I really like it and I'm going to go and take it. Um, and so the, uh, if, if the woman has access and control over the things in the in the house, even after the husband dies, then the inheritors can make her swear that she did not take anything. But in the following cases, they cannot make her swear. If she went directly from the cemetery back to her father's house and she didn't go back home, well then there's no way that she stole anything. So there's no suspicion. They cannot make her swear. Or even if she did go back to her in-law's house, meaning to her husband's house, I guess you know, they lived in a compound together with the in-laws, um, but she was not made a steward. So she just went there and she was you know, sitting around there for a while, but she was not in charge of anything. Then the inheritors cannot make her vow uh, that uh, she didn't take anything. But if she was made a steward, your husband dies and says, okay, now listen, you got to, you know, until we figure out the will, uh, you are in charge of everything here. Uh, then the inheritors come, maybe they were kids and now they grow up. They can make her swear on that which is to come. Not not about the future. You know, it's not swearing about that she won't do a crime in the future, but rather means from the time of the death of her husband and onward, she swears that uh, she did everything correctly. Um, and they do not make her swear about the past, about during the husband's lifetime. Because that was, uh, that was uh, um, a matters between the husband and wife. If the husband had a problem, so they would, they would deal with it. The husband died. So we start the clock there. That's when the inheritors come in as interested parties and want to make sure that nothing uh, was taken uh, from that point on. So if she's in charge of the property, then they can make her swear. Baruch Adonai Amen v'amen.